here we are with The Veil, Hope Rides Alone, The White Line Nightmare. Uh, my name is Devin, and I will be the Master of Ceremonies. And to my left, we have X playing Y. Nicole playing Aaron, who is one of the the attached. Kevin playing Wiss, who is the dying. Uh, Peter as Rayleigh, the apparatus. Ian as James, the catabolist. All right, listeners. So we are playing The Veil. <clears throat> the Veil is a cyberpunk tabletop role-playing game that is based off of the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, design paradigm. Uh, talking about Powered by the Apocalypse is complicated because it's this whole other new way of doing RPGs that's fairly interesting and pretty roleplay heavy. Uh, so I'm, we're not going to do that. But this episode is an introduction to The Veil and specifically the game that we're going to be playing. So the... Veil is essentially a settingless toolkit to run cyberpunk narrative stories. Um, specifically cyberpunk, but not Shadowrun, which is basically its own thing, so it's not quite the same. That could be a whole other video talking about how Shadowrun is a very different version of cyberpunk. But anyway, so in the Veil, you have a few mainstays. There is um, people and there is technology, and there is power inequality, and there is this concept of the veil, which is a, a universal technological creeping imposition on the human condition, where technology is so everywhere that reality itself has like uh, a second skin over top of it called the veil. Basically everyone has neurochips, so augmented reality is everywhere, and you can't quite tell where reality is and where the, the kind of digital additions to it begin and end. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the basics for the Veil. And the types of characters you can play are very different and don't conform to the traditional character class model or archetype model you'd be used to. They're basically their own thing, and they're not really like anything else you'd expect from an normal RPG. Like, there's no bard or fighter or wizard. Um, they're more like... The, the things you can play in the Veil, the playbooks, which is what they're called, um, are basically broad strokes interpretation of characters you normally see in cyberpunk stories. But, like, on a really meta level. Um, yeah, you guys want to change anything? Yeah, I know that. You guys going to talk about our playbooks and what they really are about? Yes, let's uh, begin <coughs> there. So, I'm running the game, which means I have a fair amount of resources and kind of like paperwork in front of me. We printed out a lot of stuff for this. Uh, so, the, the game engine runs on rolling 2d6 and seeing if you get a hit or a miss. But even if you get a miss, quote-unquote, you still succeed. It's just succeed and. It's kind of like this thing where if you, even if you fail, you're still making progress. Um, the game is built around these things called moves. Uh, moves are basically little mechanical widgets to prop up the decisions you're making in the narrative of the game, the fiction of it. So if you're investigating something, you explain how you're investigating what you're doing, and then you pick a move from the move list that best fits that, and then you roll to see kind of where the, the action stands around that narrative. 
you know, if it succeeds or if it fails or if a complication comes up or if different things are interjected based on the move you've picked. So with that in mind, um, the four playbooks that we have picked for this game uh, goes as follows. Um, my character is one of the attached, which basically <coughs> is the... Um, you have an object that you're attached to in some kind of spiritual way. Um, a good example is just like an ancestral sword that guides you or whatever. Or like a drone or like, um, I don't know, a companion AI or something. Yeah, basically it can be anything you really want. It's more of like the type of... How am I trying to say this? Connection to it? Yeah, it's very, it's very broad. Like, like it's not, it's not going to always be a weapon. It's not going to always be anything. Well, yeah, it's it, so different. As you say. For example. It, it runs the gamut of a character that has like a bloodthirsty, you know, cursed gun to a character having an advisor like Frank from Donnie Darko. Yes, which is basically what I did. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the specifics of what we did with each of your characters for the splats after we kind of do the basics of the game. Okay. Just when we do like the, the very detailed descriptions of your characters. But for now, yeah. The What does the attached kind of play like uh, from your first kind of impression of it? I know, right? You, you have to see the look that Cole's giving me. Um, yeah, we, we, we've been doing a lot of reading. This is like the second week we've gotten together to start doing The Veil. So a lot of it's been like reading and doing the connections to different characters. So the attached, you have your, your object you're attached to and it accrues resources on its own and spends those to complicate your life and like have powers. Yeah, the object wants something. Uh, no matter what type of, of object you choose, uh, it, it wants something. It has a goal apart from yourself. It wants. Um, yeah, so it gains oh, hunger. Um, hunger basically is like, yeah, it wants to do something. I don't actually know yet what happens when you get too much hunger. Yeah, I know. I'm assuming something bad. I actually don't know. We got a whole other week to figure that out. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's basically that it wants something, and if you try appeasing it, feeding it, then the hungers go down. It's more sated, I suppose. It's yeah. hungry for making your life complicated. Yeah, like yeah, if you do what it wants, um, you you get more powers essentially. Like you get XP and stuff like that if you do it once. Um, so doing what it wants is favorable. I don't know what happens if you don't do what it wants, though. Like, there probably are consequences. I haven't gone that far yet. Um, we haven't played yet, listeners, any Powered by the Apocalypse game at all. This is our very first one. Yeah. So, um... Oh. <laughs> I don't even know what else to go over. Um, yeah, that's, that's everything, a pretty good... Yeah, everything else is more specific to yeah. my yeah. thing. So, so yeah, the, the attached... Or, the attached? Yes. Yeah. The attached is a character that has another thing connected to it, and the thing is basically like the most important thing about it and how it complicates their lives and how it gives them access to interesting ways for them to control the narrative. Yes. Uh, I'm gonna say the word narrative and fiction a lot, listeners, uh, because there isn't a better way to describe it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kevin. Alright, so I am playing the dying, and the dying is essentially someone who is, well, of course, dying from a from an ailment. It can be a disease, something like that. And essentially it is non-communicable. You can't spread it to anyone else, but it is inevitably going to kill you. There's no cure. 
And it's a very short-term character, because your symptoms build up over time, getting worse and worse, uh, causing your character to suffer in various ways, and eventually they're just going to die, unavoidably. It also gives you powers, though, the more symptoms you get, right? It also does give you powers, yes. Powers, um, more and more... It also makes you show more and more that you're dying. Eventually it becomes unavoidable. Like, for people to find out. And yeah, you gain powers. Uh, you start being able to move unnaturally. You can fly or crawl like a spider or something like that. You can start to uh, become more powerful. You start integrating cybernetics into yourself uh, easily. And yeah, it's a character who can kind of spread out their own life and uh, lengthen it by establishing relationships with other people. It's, you know, you're around other people and those friendships preserve your life. Yeah, the game is very much hinged on creating meaningful relationships with other characters, and every character type has a bonus for connecting with a character uh, in an intimate way, be it like physical or emotionally intimate. And for the dying, um, it actually stops their symptoms from progressing uh, that session. Yeah, so the dying is essentially the story of how they handle their their death, their last few days or months or years on Earth. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I think that's it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like you're you're it is such a broad concept too. All of these are so broad. Like we talked about how Frank from Dying Darko could work for the attached. Mm -hmm. One of the symptoms for the dying is you have an invis you have like a like a hallucination that has its own personality that that is interacting with you as a symptom of your disease. Which could also be Frank from Donnie Darko. Oh yeah, or the embodiment of the disease, or just anything. Yeah. yeah. There's also one where you're slowly turning into something else. <clears throat> yeah, it, it runs the gamut. I'd almost want to go over types of characters from Cyberpunk that these archetypes could be, but it's so weird that I think we would probably do, end up doing that later after we've actually got to play them. Oh yeah, yes, most definitely. Like the concepts are fairly broad. Yeah. All right, Peter. So I'm playing the Apparatus, which is an artificial intelligence robot created something. So yeah, it's basically you wake up without knowing necessarily where you came from, who created you and so on. And the game is about a few things. One, it's about figuring out you know, where you came from, who's your maker, what's your purpose. The other one is about finding humanity. You start off as something that has only one emotion. As everybody else has six, you can unlock more of them. You can start asking important questions about humanity, figuring out, hey, is humanity good or bad? How do you feel about it? Do you feel anything at all? Or are you just calculating, cold, machine, and so on? You can start embracing the humanity or rejecting it. Hey, maybe, you know, humanity is, you know, doomed beyond fail and you're the next thing in the evolution. You know, it's all there. Yeah, the playbook is very much predicated on exploring the cyberpunk idea of being able to look at what humanity is from the outsider's perspective. Yeah. Uh, because what the apparatus is doesn't necessarily have to be a machine. It could be a lot of things um, based on just how you interpret the, the playbook. And yeah, that, that one thing that I do want to bring up is how you're saying how you only have one emotion. In, in the game... You don't have stats like strength or like combat stats. There are six emotional states that a character is usually in, and what emotion you're in when you are acting and rolling on that um, it determines the kind of bonus you get. And if you, you stick those emotions too much in the course of uh, the game, 
you, you start to actually like go through like like a, a sort of surge in that emotion and have to kind of break off of it or else you can't like act on anything else. And for the uh, apparatus, they only start with one emotion and they have to actually really work to get the other ones unlocked, which is kind of cool. Yeah. It's very data. Yeah. So yeah, for example, the apparatus, when it gets intimate with someone, it gets to ask some really fundamental questions about humanity, like, oh, what purpose do the humanity serve? Or, you know, in what ways do you believe we're similar, you know, between the apparatus and, say, the dying, and so on. And it starts to touch on the humanity. Basically, once you create the apparatus, you accrue humanity. You can spend that to figure more about yourself and so on, or it can be more of an evil apparatus where you start inflicting humanity harm on people, making them question their own humanity and go insane with some uh, really uh, existential questions they cannot face, and they're only brought up because hey, you're facing with some AI that's you know created life that might surpass you or you know it's not sorry judging you based on you know what's happening here in the cyberpunk world so yeah um other than that the apparatus can also try merging with other ais or you know computers and stuff like that so this is, gets more into the original ghost in the shell movie where we had the puppet master telling hey i want to make something new of myself Let's merge with another something like me, and let's go forward, move this thing, evolve, and so on. So yeah, I think that's generally the breath of the apparatus. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's an excellent way to explore those themes, uh, which are really relevant to cyberpunk. Oh yeah, <laughs> super relevant. Yeah, basically ex machina, ghost of the shell. <laughs> I think the attached is really the easiest, or the, no, sorry, the um, apparatus is the easiest to find examples of, because it's obvious to point out robots. It, it is like, like the, it's, out of all the characters being played today in this game, the, the apparatus is the most straightforward. Yes. Um, one of the, the suggestions I have for the apparatus, um, this idea that you're... Oh, sorry, the themes of amnesia play a big part in the apparatus, too. Yep. The themes of not knowing your origin and defining your origin as you explore it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, leveraging between the game master asking a question to the character about their mysterious past and them getting to answer and define it, and the character asking the game master the game master to define it. It goes back and forth depending on the swing of what's going on in the game. Yeah, basically this, uh, like... I know, dozen questions about the past of the apparatus that the game master and the player gets to answer. And answering the question is basically a privilege. Like, if you win it on a roll, the game master has to ask you a question, so you get to define that part of your character. And I guess it's going back and forth from the least important question to the more important questions. And yeah, that can really shape what the character is, and you might never, not be sure until the very end who created you, what purpose you serve, and all that stuff. So they really can build up that emotional, uh, that narrative payoff over the game. One thing I'd actually like to bring up before you go into your example of yeah. Uh, yeah, go for it. apparatus, uh, I forgot to mention the fact that for the attached, if you're parted from your object, Ooh, yeah. bad stuff happens. You're codependent. Like, it's super codependent. If you're parted from it, uh, there's different consequences that your character specifically can have, and that's actually a, a pretty big part of the character. Yeah. So I thought I'd throw that in there because it's actually pretty important to the yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, Devin, you were saying an example of an apparatus you thought of. So one example of the apparatus I thought of that's a little out there, but all the playbooks are like that, because the themes of amnesia, which basically are standard for a theme of not knowing yourself and your origins and why you exist, uh, would be a grown-up uh, like teenager or adult who used to be a teen prom beauty pageant uh, like kid, or like a child actor kid, because those types of people have an origin that's highly manipulated and highly uh, uh, manufactured. Manufactured um, uh, themes of like like the themes of a kind of like gaslighting and, and mental kind of control and the stripping of uniqueness all comes into play with teen beauty like not teen a tween tiny tots beauty pageants. What's those that show called? Toddlers and Tiaras. There we go. Those, those horrible, awful, soulless shows where they make children dress up. And like try to appeal to judges who think which one has it all going on and stuff, even though they're like six. That kind of grooming would be an excellent apparatus. Yes. That would be an excellent, and and, like you can build your apparatus with the playbook to be just like indistinguishable from a person, which makes sense if you're picking up a child actor or a former uh, toddler with tiara like person, because you are indistinguishable from a person. It's just fundamentally everything that would have been a person inside of you was pushed aside so you'd be a very good little model. Yes. That was just one thought I had about the, the character type. Yeah, which I, lo- I, which I really like that example because it really points out how out there these can be. It says the apparatus and everyone automatically thinks robot, especially because the picture is of a robot. But I mean, it's it doesn't have to yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be. Like, that's such an out there example I would have never thought of. And I love that example because mm-hmm. it, it showcases how broad of choices you have in each playbook. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the attached, or the apparatus, and we running keep doing in. That. They both start with A, they're at the top, they both deal with things. <laughs> they both deal with things. things. The architect. Um, I'm the catabolist. So I basically, I'm a huge cybernetics fan. I, but in in a different way, because only the cybernetics I make work for me. So a lot of my character thing is on, do I actually make cybernetics, or is my belief what allows the cybernetics to work? Or that kind of stuff. Um, And as I say, only I can scavenge and make cybernetics for myself. Other ones don't work on me. as I make them, I get different, more bonuses or less bonuses depending upon the materials I use. Um, yeah, really cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, your color starts with a gimmick, it's all little tool. Well, yeah, no, I start with the Omni tool, which is a, I've basically developed a super powerful cybernetic piece that is what allows me to create more cybernetics for myself. Um, I picked one that is detachable and it can like go scavenge on its own kind of stuff. Um, yeah. It's very much the uh, transhuman one. Yeah. It's heavily leaned toward transhumanism and yeah. uh, do it yourself. Yeah. So I believe cybernetics is the way of the future. I believe all humans need cybernetics and to not have it is just ridiculous. Well, certainly it's very body horror. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't have to be someone that thinks that. Um, no, you, thinks that it could definitely be someone that like you know. Yeah, needs you it to go, live or whatever. Yeah, classic surgery addiction. Yeah. Or or you could be someone who's just 
terrified of the machines and thinks that we need like you know to upgrade to beat them and then once we beat them they're point it's pointless or you know there's a lot of different ways philosophies, philosophies on why you need the cybernetics but at the end of the day the catabolist needs cybernetics yeah and the catabolist itself uh, like on its character sheet when you build it you have to build its philosophy so the philosophy yeah. is a core part of the catabolist yes mm. whatever yeah. like it's it's a super important yeah so I guess that's the general view of the types of cards we're playing. Yeah. And there are several others. There's that, like uh, 17. Yeah, that we uh we did not pick those ones, so we did not look that much into them. Yeah, a large part of the game is that no one can play the same the same archetype. Which is cool, because, I mean, the fact that there's 17, and as Devin said earlier, they're so different from each other. They're mm -hmm. so... Like, we were just flipping through it today, and even though we've all read them a little bit, we're still looking at it and being like, oh, this thing has this power, this one has this power, this one's really interesting with this ability, this one, you know, the backstory or the connections, or, yeah, just crazy. Have we mentioned uh, Geary yet? We have not. We haven't even got there. <laughs> so, in the game itself, um, the game really emphasizes building relationship connections. And in fact, you actually cannot complete character creation unless you sit down with the other players and do that. <laughs> yeah, like, like like when the game is done, you will have a party that's already integrated and understand each other and have opinions on each other and owe favors. Mm -hmm. So the game has a favor system called Geary, and Geary is um, just basically the, this general. A lot of cyberpunk takes its inspiration from uh, Japanese business culture or the pop culture version of it like it's in Blade Runner and Neuromancer and all the anime cyberpunks that we could possibly mention obviously <laughs> but the idea of salarymen and megacorps and you know all that bullshit is represented um, one of the things they, they, they talk about a lot is honor or favor culture and that's what Geary is. Geary represents the, the favor cultural exchange that you have going on. Where, like, if you open up to someone or expose yourself to them in, like, a really intimate way and they don't reciprocate, they owe you because you showed weakness to them and that that's... You basically... Yeah, instead of, instead of them having leverage over you because you did it, they owe you because you exposed something of yourself. For most character types, there are oh. some character types. Oh, though, really we're not, talking, we're not yeah. talking about the character types. No, we're no, talking no, about yes. the, the concept of gear. Yes, but and, and it's different from like like strong like Klingon honor culture that most gamers will be familiar yeah. with. Yeah. So the idea is that if you make yourself vulnerable to someone in an appreciable way, um, apropos of kind of nothing, or as or do a favor for them, or like if you give part of yourself to someone, they owe you. Yeah. And you know it, and you can call that in. And the game, like, quickly generates these connections between the players and between NPCs, which then get to be defined, and if other players know that NPC, then the connections start building with them. The game builds a very complex web of, of scenes and relationships and reasoning pretty quick. Like, uh, every character has, like, three geary questions about who knows what about you, and we roundtabled all of them for every character, and, like, everyone knows different things about each other's character out the gate, and it, there's a lot of questions to be asked. Like, 
Like, I think Ian's character told Peter's character his personal philosophy, and Peter's character shared his philosophy with Kevin's character, and Kevin's character knows that Ian's character thinks humanity's um, garbage, and it's this, it's this whole complicated triangle of people feeling feelings and trading favors and stuff. Yep. And when you take cyberware, it does the same thing. You have to owe people things and, and have markers to call in, and it just... it gets complicated fast. So you have a fairly dynamic social group of the PCs and their immediate NPCs and an economy of favors and trading and secrets that they know and feelings that they know and information that they know already done. Already ready to go. Yep, yep. It's something that you very much would want to adopt for other games once you get through it a few times. Because it, it's, it's a little complicated if you haven't done it before. Yep. It's really fantastic, though. I love that because in gaming, a lot of times players will come to the to the table with their characters done, and then you have to try to shoehorn them all together. Yeah, the way that this system, yeah, the way that this system works, you, the character creation is not done until you figure that out, and it really uh, it really helps. We all have ways to be attached to each other. We all have different NPCs in each other's lives that we know. I really like it. So I also really like the emotion system. So it uh, helps yeah. you focus on what your character is feeling instead of, you know, I, I roll the dice. <laughs> mm -hmm. I roll the dice angrily. So, yeah, that's kind of what gear is. It's, it's this favor slash honor culture system. And then you have, like, the money system. And then, you know, it's all very standard cyberpunk, sh almost shadow running kind of stuff. Beliefs. Uh, beliefs are another big thing that characters have. Characters believe in things. And... The beliefs are flags for the game. So there are three per character, and we got four, so there's 12 beliefs in the game. And what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to take these beliefs and manufacture scenes where these beliefs can be challenged. So if you believe that you'll never hurt a person, you'll never cause harm to another human being, then, I, then you're telling me that that's what you want to show up in the game. So I will put a scene in where you will have to choose whether or not you hurt someone and see if your character is able to stick to that. And if you if it if you like are challenged by it, you get XP. If you're challenged by it and stick to and it gets you in trouble, you get more. And if it like radically alters your worldview, you get more on top of that. Yeah. And beliefs are made to be changed and upheld and altered and swapped around and you can like give them up when you when you think you've explored that for the character properly. Exactly. I I definitely like that about it. It's not the beliefs aren't there to be thrown away uh, every time they're tested, and they're not there to stay forever. Um, you get XP no matter how it resolves itself. If it's tested and you keep it, you get stuff. If it's tested and you change your belief, you get stuff. There's no downside to either way, either side of that. Yeah, it stays as long as you're willing to explore the concept. And once you're done with the concept, you move on. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that your character doesn't believe it anymore. It just means that it's not something that needs to be tested. It seems like it would be a super useful thing for us to have used in Godbound, because yes. Godbound is all about those kinds of moral quandaries. Like, I could have thought of, like, 50 of these for Atris, yes. and his long, complicated past of belief systems and concepts on morality and holding humanity's hands and stuff. Also, it reminds me of Aspirations from 
Chronicles of Darkness. Well, there's ever a high fantasy version of this, that's always something. There is, it's called Dungeon World, and people are divided on it. Hmm. It's a little, it's supposed to be D&D for Apocalypse World, but it's a little too D&D, according to people. Oh, so, it's like, it, it takes too much from D&D's tropes, instead of taking it from the concept of an Apocalypse World type game for fantasy adventure. I, I don't know. I haven't played. We haven't played one goddamn session of an Apocalypse World game, so who am I to judge? <laughs> but it exists. There's like 80 of these games, uh, and they're all fucking wild. Like, uh, there's one I kickstarted, uh, The Legacy 2nd Edition, and in that game, you play... You, you, the player, have an entire tribe of survivors on a super future area that survived a tech apocalypse, and... Tech apocalypse. Yeah, you play a tribe, and every other player has their own tribe, and for various things that are happening in the game, you zero in and build individual characters that come out of that tribe and do stuff to, like, survive. Kind of Fallout style or Horizon Zero Dawn style. Or almost Shadow of the Colossus style, too. Civilization? Uh, not, not quite like Civilization, but yeah, that, that would work, too. Um... It's really weird, man, but hey, that's just a game that's out there. You know, there's one called Monster Hearts, which is um, basically the Canadian TV series Vampire High. Yes! But for all the Chronicles of Darkness types. Also the Monster High doll uh, franchise, the I game. I love that! It's amazing. They're, they're, there's also, like, heavy LGBT parallel themes drawn between the monster types. Mm -hmm. and, and all of the Breakfast Club stereotypes you see in an 80s high school. Like, they all they all intersect in this amazing way. Uh, there's one called Urban Shadows, which is just Chronicles of Darkness. Like, all the monster types are there, and it's just it's just that. Okay. Well, the veil. Yeah, I know. I'm going through it. Um... Yeah, the, the other one, uh, there's just hundreds of fan games. Like, Mass, there's one for Mass Effect, there's one for Star Trek. So there's substance to what's going on with these games. A lot of them are, are really fun. There's also a traditional Shadowrun game, if you're interested in that, that's called The Sprawl. And it has a lot of really neat stuff in it. So, uh, basically the beliefs are, I think, the only way to get XP? Or is think, the main one? I think, I think beliefs are the way to get, like, I still have to read. I get XP from other stuff. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, see, there are other okay. ways. So, individual XP, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's like the main way you should be getting XP in this system is by exploring your beliefs, challenging them. Beliefs are definitely an easy avenue. Yeah. And, like, the playbooks you've chosen are also flags, like... By playing the attached or playing the apparatus, you're telling me that that's what the game is supposed to be about. So that's what it's supposed to be geared towards now. Yeah. When it says yeah. what it says under improvement is when you attempt something that benefits you and fail, then you get XP as, XP yeah. as well. So yeah, that's that's pretty open ended. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a good chunk of describing the the the, the veil. I can't really think of anything else. I think I think that covers the basics. You know, there's, yeah. there's an honor culture. The the playbooks are weird, and it's it's not Shadowrun because Shadowrun is a very very specific version of cyberpunk that almost isn't cyberpunk in a lot of ways because how Shadowrun is kind of mutated into its own genre. Yeah. Yes, um, it's not that kind of cyberpunk. One thing about uh, that I'd like to bring up. Uh, you just mentioned how the playbooks we chose to tell you what the game's supposed to be about. 
that's very much true because some of the ones we didn't choose were a corporate executive or like a, a, a surviving monk of a dead religion, like that kind of a dude who has a fiddler's green inside his soul that he hides in. Yeah, or like someone who's just you know about human perfection and like you know being a, a, a buff dude. And if you chose those, it would be a very different game just by the nature of that indicating what type of game you want. Yeah. So that that's very very much true. That yeah, which uh, kind of goes without saying, but also is really nice to point out with like this specific game. Yeah, it should go without saying that if characters build those classes, that's what they want the game to be about. But hey, you know, if you never roleplayed before and this is what you were doing, that would be you know, it took me when I started GMing, it took me a long time to know that lesson. <laughs> you know, fucking playing, running D and D, like I, that never—that's not obvious. Uh, also, if you think about playbooks, the, the setting itself also has a little playbook of its own, where you get to determine where you're playing and so on. Yeah, and yeah. I, I should, I should uh, de-pack, decompack. What's the word I'm looking for? Unpack. I should unpack. unpack the term playbook. So every. Okay, unlike other RPGs where you have like this big system for making your own character and stuff, or you have like a class or whatever, you have a playbook. A playbook is essentially a two-page thing that has everything you need for your character on it. And all you do is check off boxes for the specific configurations and customizations you have done. So it has... There are generic moves for the game that everyone can take, and then it also has moves specific to the character playbook you have. And also has other things that are specific, like what type of powers you have, and what types of benefits you have, and how you gain various resources are all custom-picked as you also, go through the book. what cybernetics you can start with. Yes, that's also in play. <laughs> so a playbook is basically your entire... You, you don't need the core book if you have the playbook. Like, you print out the reference sheet, which has like all of the generic moves on it, and you print out your playbook, and you're good to go. You don't need the book, you don't need your laptop... Um, it's just a fairly intuitive way to run the game. You don't really have to stop to reference shit because as long as you have all those rules, those four-ish pages in front of you, you have the whole game dynamic in front of you. You're good to go. Same with the GM. So it's it's very helpful on that. Once once you know how to run the veil, you don't need to use the book after a while because it's all it's not factual information about how the game mechanics work. It's more advice on how to run the game and prepare it and make the narrative engaging. Yeah. Which is something you need to read once and then not really have to reference in the actual game. So, yeah, this, the, the, there, there's a lot of helpful things. Like, there's the playbooks for the character sheets, and there's a playbook for the setting, which we all together go over. You're supposed to. You're supposed yeah. to it's not about the GM making up his own thing. He provides a seed idea, characters build their characters, and how you write up the playbook alters the setting, and then you actually go through the setting playbook and, and get that all kind of rammed together into this new collaborative game. Yeah, I very much like that this game stresses everyone here is playing the game. An not the equal GM. Participant. Exactly. The GM isn't God or anything like that. He's another player, and we all work together to have a fun time. Exactly. <laughs> like, this, this is something that I've always been like for running games. I've, I've always stood by that the GM is not any more special than anyone else at the table. He's not God. He isn't entitled for his <coughs> elf game fantasy to have priority over other people's elf game fantasy. Everyone gets to participate equally. No one has veto rights. It's a group thing. And the Powered by the Apocalypse seems to push that forward. So that's neat. Mm-hmm. And the scenario sheet? 
the scenario sheet? I don't know. I haven't looked at the scenario sheet. Well, uh, that uh, basically like, after the first session, you should uh, put together like the concepts of the game. Yeah. yeah so this will probably be something we talk about more after the first session. But there's basically some work you do after the first session that helps kind of build the direction of the game. And there's a lot of like philosophical questions and genre questions that the game asks you that you should be asking the players and yourself that kind of drive it. It's a very neat way to build a season of a TV show that has like a theme or a metaphor that it's trying to talk to the audience about, the audience being the players, which is cool. So we'll figure that out after we actually run for once. Yep. I also like that it's after the first session because lots of times people try to start out with that and then once you start playing the characters it doesn't work. Yeah. So I like it when you you know you start playing the characters and then that's how you realize it's how it was supposed to be. Yeah, after the first session you're supposed to start, but it even recommends giving it another session or two before you actually know who what what they call the antagonistic is, like the, the force that opposes the players and creates the drama that drives the storytelling and what the motivation of that is and what the 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 final question is, or the final kind of like, what was this all about? What did it all mean? The kind of shit people talk about all the time with like Rick and Morty or Twin Peaks. <laughs> the, those weird kind of like, well, what, what was it all for? Which is neat. I mean, we kind of did that with Exalted near the end where, where themes were repeating and we kept seeing patterns in how the characters were acting. That kind of stuff is kind of what it drives you towards finding. Yeah. Um, Alright, so the specific setting of uh, Hope Rides Alone, The White Line Nightmare. <laughs> so, out the gate, I base this off of the uh, rock opera Hope Rides Alone by the Nashville, Tennessee rock band The Proto-Men. So good. Which are the best. Every time we come to Canada, I see them live. I fly to where they are and see them. It's the best. Yes. They're amazing. Um, so they made a rock opera that very vaguely takes concepts and ideas from the Mega Man universe and translates them over to a 1984 Orwellian dystopian nightmare where Wily has won and humanity has given up trying to fight back against the oppression of the machines. Um, because if heroes exist, that means people never stand up for themselves and are complacent and would rather have a good man die than them risk their own lives to make up to, to, to stop a bad man from having power. It's horrific and has like two albums and liner notes and they do stage directions and costumes and it's just it's the best. So good. They did the score for Terminator the second, the William Shakespeare <laughs> video play of Terminator 2. It's amazing. So taking that as inspiration, I wrote up a one-page treatise called The White Line Nightmare which is about um, a city, the only city that ever exists. It went from a coal mining town to a giant uh, glass spire, cyberpunk, you know, sprawling nightmare city. It's a city the size of a, you know, American state. And it's basically an automated city. It doesn't have an AI running it, but it has machines that keep everything going and do all the work for people and make sure people aren't allowed to really do work or have a purpose in life. It just takes care of them. It takes away their agency and people fall into depression and oppression from that because 
it provides them basic necessities, but doesn't allow them to really live. And it's also a brutal, oppressive regime, and also casually neglectful of them. Uh, and this creates a society that's lived basically a century in this kind of 1980s crude macro technology nightmare um, where there's no progress anymore. And you can't leave the city because it intentionally almost, they say, erected smokestacks and factories to burn the atmosphere. So only the air filtration in the city is where you can live. And it like cut off air to parts of the city where people try to rebel. But it's it's a very dark take on uh, on that kind of cyberpunk idea. Humanity's kept as a pet, essentially, by a neglectful owner that doesn't really care about them after they had them. And there's propaganda everywhere, and there's VR, but it's like big, bulky, you know, cathode ray tube VR. And that's what the veil is in this game, this alternate um, uh, uh, altered reality that people have installed in their brains at birth along with their barcodes and shit. And people just live lives under a city that's kind of carelessly neglectful of them. And sometimes criminals are put down, sometimes they aren't. Sometimes citizens are disappeared at night, like a 1984 nightmare. Um, people aren't in charge of anything, but, you know, crime bosses and stuff kind of rise up. And sometimes they just fall, sometimes they stay in power for a long time. But there isn't really a way to take the city back. The city just runs itself and doesn't allow people to take the reins of it anymore. Humans aren't allowed to have weapons. But everyone kind of does have weapons. They build from garbage and dead robots, and the city just basically arbitrarily will punish you for it. Sometimes days after you get one, sometimes years after you get one. But there's sometimes eyes everywhere. Never. Yeah. Every appliance and electronic device built into the infrastructure of the city has basically like an eye in it, and it's always watching you and collecting the information and interacting with you, so you're always being watched. You have no privacy. Mm -hmm. Also, all the propaganda. Yeah, propaganda everywhere about, you know, keeping quiet, loose lips, sink the ship, uh, a friendly face is a familiar face, like just insane propaganda that wouldn't apply because there aren't people living beyond the city anymore. Yes. Uh, it's one of those things where, um, like Kevin was saying, like radios in North Korea, where you can turn them down, but you can't turn them off. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's always happening. And the technology is very much like very ugly 1980s non-miniaturized analog technology. Like big, heavy hard drives and, and motors and stuff and things that have like thick cables coming out of them. All the technology in, the, in this world looks like that. So cybernetics don't look sleek and cool. They're, they're big, bulky things. They're about, you know, one and a half times the size of a normal limb that has like, you know, seams and stuff that look just atrocious. And there are machines everywhere, robots that look like Sniper Joes basically, that just enforce the city, or like little flying eye drones and rotors and stuff, and unmanned helicopters and shit. That just keeps people oppressed for no good reason. Really, there isn't a reason behind it, it just does. And it's not all one central AI doing it, it's just all these different thousands of automated systems working in tandem at all times to just do whatever it is they were originally told to do long after their creator, the man who built the first city, the man in the tower, the, which is what he's called. In reality, it's based off Dr. Wiley, but it's the man in the tower. 
this this voice that gave people um, gave people a means to live a comfortable life, but people didn't earn it. It was given to them, so they never really responded well when he started taking over because they didn't want him to take away this comfy life. And and now and now that's how people live in this automated city, this human misery factory. Um, that was the seed I, I wrote up in about a page little description, and we have tweaked it and changed it from there with the creation of the characters. So, uh, yeah, like, like there weren't really crime organizations, and now there are. There weren't really, um... Lasers. Yeah, like, I didn't envision lasers originally, but, like, that was something that looked interesting, and lasers aren't that high tech. Like, we had lasers in the 70s and 80s. They, they were invented in 56. Exactly. Yep. So it's not too out of the ordinary to think that, like, handheld lasers would exist. Like, all the technology's been scavenged from the city itself. Like, guns, there is no assembly line for guns. It's people are building them out of scrap. Or they're taking dead drones and robots and, like, putting them together into different ways and then drilling them into your body. So a lot of people are surviving not by fighting back against the city, but by taking the cast-off dead cells that the city sheds like like skin cells and drill baby drilling them into their body and cutting off the good human free will parts of themselves and replacing them with the city. Uh. I know, right? That's such a great fucking metaphor thing. Thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the, I came with a story seed and we changed it based on the characters that were being generated and the questions being asked. And now we have the setting now. Uh, so that's all I can really say about it. So I think we've gone to the part where you four describe your characters, and from there we can basically wrap. Yep. Yep. So who wants to start first? I'll start. Okay. Kevin, tell the audience who you are playing, uh, your little play splat again, and then we'll go from there. So my character is Wiss. He is the dying. And essentially he is the heir to a... I wouldn't say a company, because companies don't really exist in this universe. They are a small family business that uh, loan out cybernetics. Keyword loan. Yes. Oh, Christ. And, uh, well, if you can't pay it back... So, yeah, they kind of ensure people stay in debt to them, uh, usually through uh, Geary rather than credits, because favors are far more valuable than uh, money. So they like both. <laughs> and he was born uh, disfigured. He was born without arms and has always been sickly. And he's aware that he's dying. His family's aware that they're dying. But it's just that it could happen at any time. His family is aware that he's dying, not that they're dying. Yeah. Just to clarify the listeners, his family's not also dying. <laughs> yeah, they're aware, so they kind of keep their distance <coughs> from him. They have other, he has other siblings, and a few of them have also died, so his parents have kind of gotten used to this loss. And, uh,. Kind of distance themselves from him. He is a very optimistic person. He believes that humanity is a precious thing and that, uh, you know, if only the government realized how much humanity was suffering under their oppressive reign, maybe they'd lighten up a bit. He does genuinely think that, uh, like, humans and synthetics can get along and achieve some kind of unity. Uh, he doesn't want to kill anyone. He believes that life is precious as well, and that just because he's being robbed of, you know, a long life doesn't mean anyone else should. Uh, his, his illness is basically manifesting as something that is changing him into something else. So, 
you know, on the outside it seems as though he's dying. In reality, he may be changing into something else entirely. Um, he's got some strange abilities, such as the ability to enter one door and exit another. It's just... Exit another door. Anywhere else. Anywhere else, basically, yeah. Uh, he also is... It's impossible for him to die. It is his greatest wish that he die before he succumbs to his illness and becomes whatever is coming next. But he can't. Every time he's tried or any time something's happened, he just wakes up elsewhere. Which may be his mind... Whatever this is, overriding his mind and, uh, you know, steering him out of danger. And... Yeah, that's essentially him. He's 17 years old, he's young, he's kind of accepted the fact that something's going to happen and that there may be no way he can, he can change that. Um, cybernetics? Cybernetics, he had, oh right, yeah, because he was born without arms, an artist actually, uh, I wouldn't say gave, but he he's received two arms from them, these two ornate arms. Yeah, so whereas in the setting, usually cybernetics are, you know, big, clunky, ugly things, um, Wiss knows an artist who doesn't want it to be that way, I guess. Yeah, they're very functional and beautiful and slim, which kind of describes the character in general. He's he's very well put together. He hides his eyes. Uh, he wears kind of, I wouldn't say expensive clothing, but fancy. Uh, I think that's about it. Wanna go, do we want to go over the Geary questions? Um, I think the, the better... You know what? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Okay, sure. Let's do that. So every character has uh, every archetype has three Gary questions that kind of relate them to other characters. Uh, the first one is having he expose himself to future danger uh, by using his powers to give someone else something. Uh, the uh, what's the is played by Ian. Uh, he stole parts from his family like uh, cybernetics and gave them to him, largely out of curiosity, seeing what he could do with them. Additionally, he helped him construct his... No, wait, that's something... Is yeah, that's not sure. Yeah. Um, he confided his outlook on life, which is very much, you know, humanity is this precious thing. He confided it to the, uh, the apparatus, this soulless thing, and basically told it, you know, I want to die, life is precious, but I myself want to end it. And his final one is uh, someone knows something important about his illness, and that belongs to uh, the attached. She hasn't told him what it is yet, but for his own safety, most likely. Yes. She's witnessed a glimpse of uh, what he might turn into when his illness pull goes through its course. And yeah, those are, that's uh, that's the Geary. Yeah, she's uh, specifically keeping it from him because that's horrifying. Yes. <laughs> um. I'm the catabolist. Uh, this is Ian. This is Ian. <laughs> um, no, I thought my... it was Nicole. <laughs> oh, don't I sound amazing? Oh my god. Like, totally. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah. No, Peter. So... No one thought that you were anyone else. <laughs> None of our listeners will ever think that you're anyone but Peter. <laughs> oh, <God>. Yeah. <laughs> um, my name is James in this. Uh... I play a scrounger, so, or that's my job, not my character type. Um, so my job is I find parts and I give them to Wiss's parents. And in return, sometimes they maybe give me a few of the 
crappier parts, or... Mostly they give you disdain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, mostly disdain. But, you know, nice. pays the bills. <laughs> Spike pays the bills. <laughs> yep. So, but James wants to become a actual cybernetic manufacturer himself. He believes that cybernetics are the way of the future, and humans need them to survive in the future. So he's basically forced himself to learn and make things, and that's why Wiss gave him, or stole some parts for him, and then actually going to my Geary questions here a little bit out of order. Um, Wiss helped me by stealing the parts. I made my Omni-Tool, which is one of my abilities, and the Omni-Tool that I have is detachable, and can go search for things on its own and then bring them back to me. And then it specializes in turning what I find into parts for me. So normally I can turn things for parts for me, but because I specialized in it, I get even more bonuses and more abilities and less downside, which is pretty cool. Um, I believe all humans need cybernetics. I believe that I am the best cybernetics manufacturer, even though it's not completely proven. Um, probably even not that good at it. Like I was joking with Nicole earlier that like my character probably just takes a saw and like hacks off his arm and just rams random things onto it. And it's like, that works. And just because of the nature of his beliefs, it actually works, but other people are completely horrified by it because it should not work. Um, I also believe that the man in the tower has the best tech. I'm a little bit, like, paranoid that way, maybe you could say, or, like, I think he's hiding stuff from us, and while he gave us all this good stuff way back in the past, I think he's hiding all the best stuff for himself, and I want to find it so that we can better humanity, and, yeah. Um, I also have the ability wrench in the gears, which allows me to analyze things and figure out how they're vulnerable to me, which is kind of neat. Um, my geary questions are, if I convince someone else of my ideology or belief, so I told the apparatus about my ideology and the ideology for the catabolist is a big part of my character. And that ideology is, again, Humanity is a disease, and that we need cybernetics to move forward. We need them to become better. So I've convinced the apparatus, which is the soulless machine, that he's basically perfect. <laughs> Not quite perfect, because I'm going to make myself perfect. But he's close. <laughs> um, and then, as I said, Wiss helped me develop my Omni-Tool. And then I also... Because of my ability with cybernetics and stuff, I've worked on and helped uh, the, attached. the Attached with their cybernetics, and so they owe me some curate for that. And yeah, that's basically my character. Right. Um, this is Nicole. Once again, I'm playing The Attached. Her name is Erin. Um, I think I had her at early 20s, I think is what I said. Um, and yeah, she is actually from a part of the city that had too much rebellion, so the city shut down its air vents. 
uh, everyone that was there, like her family and everything, died. Uh, she managed to escape, but in the process, um, because I'm unattached, uh, I have an object. Instead of it being a physical object, I chose the option of it manifested itself to me as a mental projection. So my character basically believes that the spirits of the people that died there, um, not individual spirits, but you know, the spirit of what happened, the, the spirit of all that suffering, uh, basically manifested itself to her and it wants justice. It, uh, it's angry that, you know, they all died. It, uh, you know, doesn't like the way the world is, obviously, because they, they were a bunch of rebellious people. Um, that's what she believes the object is. Um, I also, uh, my character, I also chose the option that uh, she also can't die unless my object dies. Uh, so basically, it's keeping her alive to meet its ends of getting justice for it. Um, I have the, um, like I said earlier, uh, I interjected when Peter was talking about the apparatus, um, when the attached is parted from its object, something bad happens. Uh, there's a few different options you can choose. I chose the option, uh, sickly. So when I'm parted from my object, uh, like I'll start not being able to breathe very well. I'll start like being kind of weak. Basically the, the symptoms that would have happened to the people there start manifesting in me. I get sickly when it's not around, um, which really plays into the thing that it's keeping me alive to play out its revenge, basically, well, justice. Um, so that's that. Um, yeah, there's this thing where if you're, um, if you have a moment of emotional or physical intimacy with someone, everyone has like a special thing that happens. With the attached, uh, basically the object gets jealous. <laughs> so you have to roll, uh, so basically if you have an intimate um, interaction with someone, your object gets more hunger. And also you need to roll and um, things happen. You and the person you had the intimate moment with uh, get negatives to your next rolls and stuff oh, wow. uh, until you basically the person who had the intimate moment with only happens like for one turn I think but for my character the attached it's there until you convince your object that no it wasn't a big deal it, I, it, it was just it wasn't it didn't mean anything basically <laughs> um, amazing, which I thought actually. was pretty cute when I saw that actually especially with what this is um, that oh beliefs um my character believes that any created life um like you know the apparatus <laughs> or anything like that uh she basically believes that created life is predisposed to be harmful to humanity not necessarily that they are malicious but just by nature they're predisposed to be harmful um she also believes that uh powerful people profit off the suffering of the less fortunate. Um, she does not like Wiss's parents, even though she works for them. They're, they're specifically the type of people, preying off people that need, you know, arms because they don't have them and making them like, you know, owe them favors forever. Okay. Once again, the, the, the important word in that was loan, <laughs> not sell, remember? We have to have money. <laughs> yeah. We've got to. Um, but her third belief is actually that resistance is futile. 
we're, we're never going to make a real change, no matter what kind of rebellion humanity might throw up. We're never actually going to be able to defeat the man in the tower. We're never going to be able to make any meaningful change in the, our situation. My character is a thief. Uh, she steals from powerful people. She'll, you know, wreck machines or anything like that. But it's more on a personal level that she's doing that. She doesn't really think it's going to accomplish anything other than an immediate gain for herself. Exactly. Um, my cybernetics, uh, I have magnetic limbs, all four limbs, uh, so, you know, we live in a city, that's very helpful for a thief. Uh, I actually have a storage compartment in my tummy, also because I'm a thief. And I also have a laser eye. It's great. <laughs> so when, yeah, when you take cybernetics, you basically owe other people, so that, uh, helped out. The person who did her, her eye is actually a, uh, part of the rebellion. So, that's an NPC I threw in there. <laughs> uh, she also owes a bunch to Wiss's parents. <laughs> so, for, gear, for my character's Geary questions, uh, the first one is, if someone keeps a secret about your object, uh, that would harm it or you in the future. So, that's the apparatus. Basically, the mentally ill aren't treated great in this world. And she thinks she has a ghost following her. So that's what the apparatus knows. It's something that would be very easy to use against her, actually. Um, my second one is um, if you've told anyone about the precise origin. So that's the catabolist, James. He knows that she came from a rebellious place that was shut down, uh, that the air filters were shut down and everything. He knows that's where she's from and that's where the object manifested um and my last scary question is if someone has seen what happens to you when you're part from an object once again when i'm not near my object um i get sick i can't breathe like basically having an asthma attack uh have low energy and everything and that was the dying which i really liked because he's you know also sick uh, so yeah he saw me in that state at least at one point I think that's everything. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <coughs> okay. So the apparatus named uh, Rayleigh. Uh, it's an androgynous, uh, plasticky white, uh, humanoid looking, uh, well, basically robot, AI. It's been found by the attached in a studio, basically a design studio. And it's obvious it's been a project of someone, but we don't really know who it created. It basically was like left alone there. It got taken to the uh, catabolist to be fixed up, and well, I well, I didn't take it for parts or fixed up, but it came to life. And yeah, it's a bit learning about humanity from the various sources, like a sponge absorbing all the views people have. So. Well, the first thing we learned from the catabolus is this ideology of, you know, humanity needs to be fixed with cyberware. And... Good ideology. Yeah, you know, like, hey, that's what you think, you know, let's yeah. take it in a row with it. It confined that in, uh, to Kevin's character, the dying, and it didn't go over that well. So the dying shared his ideology of humanity is precious, 
which the opponents also took in. Like, you know, it's a bit conflicting, but hey, that's what the beliefs are supposed to be. You know, one of them will stand the test, the other one won't. Uh, it's not, it's not really conflicting, conflicting actually. Well, it's just, humanity is precious, but it also isn't perfect. It humanity is a disease that needs to be fixed with cybernetics, quote. Yeah, still, <laughs> yeah, he's like, not saying humanity should die. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm it's definitely precious. not. It's precious, it's just, like, you know, not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. Basically, Apparatus um, got a lot of its cyber upgrades or repairs done through the various characters. And uh, yeah, it has a lot of cybernetics, basically, uh, to the whole gamut there. So, you've got some multispectral amplification, uh, HUD eyes, um, some communication, intercepting, recording ears. Arms with some encrypted connections to the network, we've got some compensating legs, an interface that's multitasking the remote, and a storage in its chest, which is a giant cavity. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, yeah, instead of working as a AI repair robot, because hey, it can go to places where the robot might break down and there are not that may scavenge around because, hey, people need to breathe and the apparatus don't. So there's a lot to scavenge there. Yeah. Uh, what else? Well, you've basically gone over the Geary question. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. yeah. The description you gave at the beginning was the Geary questions for the listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. My Geary question, oh, if someone found you, if I confide my current view of humanity. And yeah, the last one is, if someone taught me how to blend and stand out. So the catabolist helped me to learn how to stand out. But <laughs> hey, I am an AI, you know, live with it. And I guess the last, oh, okay. <laughs> the last belief that Apparatus has is that the, the city is helping people, but they don't uh, um, see it really. Uh, yeah. So it's a lot of conflicting things, a lot of, well, of maybe disparaging things or something. It's, again, it's currently trying to absorb everything, figure out oh, what its role in humanity is. You know, there aren't that many AIs around, there are just more of autonomous robots and so on. So, hey, something new. Nobody knows where it goes. Alright. I think that covers basically everything we have so far for the game. Yeah. Which is a fair amount of content that was generated just from character creation. Yeah. Yep. Like, like, it's a very dense setup we have so far, and so refining that and then the first session will happen but i think that's the end of our intro i think that's all the info we can possibly give the listeners um check out the veil it's on drive through it's pretty neat but um I've, i was devin nicole kevin and peter ian <laughs> and this is sponsored by nobody signing off